Good evening. Glad to see everybody present tonight. I don't know about you, but ever so often I get the feeling a little lackadaisical, I guess, about being a Christian. Maybe I lose sight of or just don't uh, try hard enough to think about what it means to be a Christian and what I should be doing and who it is I'm serving, the God of all time, creator of the earth. And because of that, we can live certain degrees of being a Christian, sometimes closer to the good side, sometimes the best side, but sometimes we might become lackadaisical and and go to the lower side. But the lesson tonight is a, a boost, you might say, for us to live the, the best Christian life we can and why we should live that life. The title of it is Distinctive Christianity. To me, as I've just said, there are different degrees of Christianity that Christians live. Some do a better job than others. And may our lesson tonight help us to become better Christians. Webster lists the definition of distinctive as distinguished from others, clear, well-defined, separate. You know, back in the olden days, we took snapshots of each other using cameras which were not very well refined. It was almost impossible to get a real good picture. They just always seemed to be out of focus. You couldn't get them in focus. The images were not distinct. Another way of helping us to understand the definition of distinctive could be something like this. You might be driving down a country road in October and you come across the hill and you see a grove of trees and all of these trees are green except one. And that one tree is all orange and yellow and fiery red. That maple tree is distinctive. It stands out from all the rest. It's separate. There's no doubt that it is different from all of the other trees in the woods. It clearly stands out from the others. This is how Christianity should be in the world. This is how we should live as Christians. You know, with a church of some kind on every corner claiming to be followers of Christ, but most of them teaching error, Christianity in general could be best described as complete chaos. In our lesson tonight, we want to think about how we can help both ourselves and the true church to be clear and separate and distinct like that maple tree in the woods. 
The true meaning of Christianity in our world today has become so vague that I believe the average person has no idea whatsoever of what real Christianity is. One interpretation might go something like this. You know, everybody wants to go to heaven in uh, some way, other ways, or one way is just as good as another. But that is so far from the truth that it makes us shudder to even think about it. Our God is distinctive from all other gods. His Word, the Bible, is distinctive from all other books. The church which Christ built is distinctive from all other churches. And we as Christians should be distinctive from everybody else also. If you would like, uh, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians six fourteen, Where the Apostle Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has right with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part of a believer uh, with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, but I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Here the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that we are to be a distinct, separate, different people as children of God. Let's look at some areas uh, which will help us in living a distinctive Christian life. Question, what will distinguish the church and make it distinctive from all other churches? Well, first we need to ask, what is the church? Look in Acts 8.3, if you like. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He made havoc of the church. How? By hauling off, dragging off men and women. From this we see that the church is made up of people. It is not a building. It is the baptized believers who make up the body of Christ, as most of us already know. Therefore, is this being true, it is the people who will distinguish the church for either good or bad. In some communities, the people of the church have acted in such a way that they have actually distinguished themselves for their inability to live together in peace. They just couldn't get along. Well, certainly this is not the way the Lord's church should be distinguished from others. Now, since the church is composed of people, that's us, to make the church distinctive, there is a certain mindset 
that we all must have. Well, what kind of mind is that? You know, the mind determines how we live and how uh, how we live distinguishes the church for good or bad. We should always be aware of the importance of a good influence that the church must have in a community. Many times in Scripture, the mind is referred to as the heart. They're one and the same thing. Proverbs 4.23, for instance, says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. That's talking about the mind. And also Proverbs 23.7, As he thinks in his heart, so is he. Well, distinctive Christians must be different in their thinking because we all live like we think. God knew that, so he gave us a book, a guide to teach us how to mold our thinking. Distinctive Christians must think more like God thinks. God doesn't think like men, we know that. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah chapter 55. We cannot think like the world and live like Christians. Distinctive living comes from distinctive thinking. The Bible emphasizes in several places the importance of the right kind of mind. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We must have a mind like Christ. Colossians 3.10 And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The word renewed here means to renovate or to uh, reverse the, the mind or the heart of the old man to a different heart, a new heart. Here we see the process actually of conversion. That's what conversion is, the changing of the mindset in some parts. Conversion involves a renovation of the mind. A new man needs a new mind. The new Christian puts to death the old man with his deeds and with his mind and puts on the new man with a new mind. Romans 12, 1, 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how we're renewed. That's how we're, we're transformed, by renewing our mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, the, the changed life of a Christian comes from the mind, which has been renewed by the influence of the gospel. And changed lives will make the church distinctive. But if our life is not changed, then really have we been converted 
In Romans 12, the transformed life is described by adjectives such as humble. It loves the good and abhors evil. It demonstrates brotherly love. In honor, prefers one another. Is happy, prayerful, benevolent, returns good for evil, associates with the lowly, does not retaliate or seek revengeance, feeds and gives drink to his enemies, is not overcome with evil, but overcomes evil with good. Any church that's made up of Christians who are truly like this will be distinctive in any community. It will be a light set on a hill whose light cannot be hid. To be distinct, we must have a distinctive spirit of worship when we worship. In all of our everyday activities, everything we do, we do them with a certain spirit or attitude. Sometimes the attitude we take toward an activity means as much or more as actually doing the task. Phrases like half-hearted and just going through the motions and your heart's not in it illustrate a certain disdain and contempt for the job and ends up with a shoddy, worthless work if our attitude is not correct. On the other hand, a distinctive spirit is considered worthy of praise. Phrases such as a spirited endeavor in a certain task or a heartfelt effort describe a person who manifests eagerness in what he does of doing a good job. And this is always considered to be honorable. The spirit manifested behind an endeavor is very important. So this being the case, the distinctive nature of true worship of God is something that every sincere child of God must consider to be necessary. Without such a distinctive spirit, worship is vain and unfulfilling. But with the correct spirit, true worship finds not only favor with the Father, but produces a joy unspeakable to the worshiper. Jesus was in Samaria on one occasion and came to Jacob's well. He was tired and sat down to rest. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus asked her, Give me water. She drew it out of the well and, and gave him water. And in the conversation that followed, Jesus talked to her about the water of life. If you'd like to, turn to John chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now we all understand what Jesus means here when He says to worship in truth. That's to worship according to the commandments of God. But what does He mean when He says worship in spirit along with the truth? How do we worship God in spirit? To be able to do this, we must first recognize how great and glorious our God really is. We serve an almighty God, and sometimes we become uh, sort of lax, or at least I do, and I'm not really thinking about at the moment how great a God we serve, the creator of the earth, the sustainer of everything that goes on now. In Isaiah 6 and beginning in verse 3, Isaiah was seeing a a vision and he saw cherubim flying from uh, uh, the lid of the ark and one of them shouted, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's the majesty and greatness of the God we serve. The awe and the greatness of God as seen by Isaiah a long time ago should also be seen by us today in every worship. Holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Then the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Except I should glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now Paul here describes the glory of God by using the glory of the cross of Jesus and what it stands for, that is, the salvation of man. The glory of God can be seen in what Christ did and the sacrifice He made and all of the salvation that it brought about. Well, this was God's plan from before time began. And unless we are excited in awe of all of this, we do not really know who God is. And that diminishes the spirit of worship when we don't stop to think about who God really is. It actually renders it unacceptable. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 3, if you'd like, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel... At the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You know, there's... Another instance in the life of Christ that helps us understand 
the spirit of worship. Turn to Luke chapter 5 and beginning in verse 1. So it was the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let, your, let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Here is Jesus, God with us. He instructs Peter about his fishing. Strangely, at the beginning, Peter sort of argues with Jesus. He said, we've been fishing all night. It's not going to do any good to put the net in anymore. But when he did, they caught more fish than they knew what to do with. Their nets couldn't hold all they caught. So here stands Peter in his dirty fishing boat, perhaps weeping, who declares to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now what Isaiah had seen in a vision of Jehovah, high and lifted up, these fishermen saw in a fishing boat, God on earth, the Savior of mankind, the only begotten Son. And because of Christ, we can fall on our knees before God, trusting in the Savior and eager to pour forth our praise and thanksgiving. God's holy nature, our sinfulness, God's forgiveness, and His nearness to us in Christ all go together to bring about the distinctive spirit and true worship of the child of God. That's why we worship. Now the pattern or form of worship is emphasized regularly from the pulpit. We hear that quite a bit, and it should be emphasized. But to teach form and pattern alone comes up short. The distinctive spirit of true worship is just as important and should be emphasized also as the form or the pattern. 
the necessary combination of pattern and spirit will bring about a warm, rich expression of worship and service suitable for a loving Christian to offer to a loving Father. We must never forget, however, that deeply felt spiritual relationships require guidelines and boundaries. Emotional or spiritual feelings can be overdone, and in most denominations are. What I'm trying to say tonight does not in any way promote actions like the lifting of the hands toward God or shouting or dancing or anything like that. I am simply saying that we cannot emphasize form over spirit. It just won't work. Because if we have nothing in our heart that compels us to praise and honor God, then directions uh, for that praise and adoration and honor are actually not worth anything. The contents of the heart come first. The motivations and attitudes that make up the spirit of a thing must be present before worship can even begin. If our heart does not hold the distinctive spirit of true worship, we are not in a position to go any further with our worship. Such a cold and unthankful heart uh, has nothing to offer, and what might outwardly pass for worship turns out to be actually an offense against God. We must have feelings but not those which are better felt than told. Let's look at some scriptures now for a minute that illustrate the point I'm trying to make. Let me ask the question. Would the directions given in the Bible for giving be for a person who did not first have a cheerful, willing heart? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, if you like. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We see here that having the right spirit, the right heart, must precede our actual giving. It must come from a cheerful heart. Next question. Would the absence of musical instruments matter if the spirit of the singer was not characterized by a melodious and thankful heart? Look at Ephesians five eighteen through 20, scripture we hear all the time. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Listen, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next question. Would saying the wrong words in a prayer be any more wrong than if a believing heart is absent when we pray? James 1, beginning in verse 6, says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. If we pray and doubt, is the prayer worth anything? 
James says, For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed about by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man and unstable in his ways. There must be some feeling in our worship. We must be cheerful givers. We must be thankful prayers. Next question. Would a truthful sermon profit a preacher if he were hypocritical? Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Next question. Would an assembly be profitable if every act of worship followed the true forms, the true pattern, but a divisive and hateful spirit prevailed in the congregation? Would our worship be acceptable? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn there if you like. Beginning in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, Paul says, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. You've come together for the worse. Why? For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. We've got to have our heart right before we worship. Would a highly sacrificial deed profit the doer one bit if it's not done in the spirit of love? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Beginning verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods, though I give away everything I have to the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. To worship in spirit and according to the New Testament pattern doesn't mean that we have a choice. The Bible never calls for such a choice. The distinctive spirit of true worship does not stand alone, but the understandings, the attitudes, the motivations that call us to worship must be in place in the heart before the pattern or the form of our worship enters in the discussion. Just as it is true in becoming a Christian, it's true in worship. The heart must be ready to act before any action is appropriate. For one to become a Christian, first of all, he has to have it in his heart 
that he wants to do something. He wants to do what's right. The pattern of worship directs a willing and accepting heart toward acceptable expressions of worship. But where there is no heart to worship, patterns are meaningless. When we sing without considering the meaning of the words, our singing is not what it should be. It's not acceptable. When we are led in prayer and we let our minds wander, our prayer is not what it should be. When God's word is being proclaimed and our minds are on our troubles, our worship is in vain. Distinctive Christianity might be described like this. Faithful Christians like all who are here tonight who come to worship three or four times each week need to be careful to make sure that our motives are are what they should be. Sometimes we get to taking worship and worship times for granted. Uh, The ordinary Christian might say, it's Wednesday and I've got to go to church tonight. But the distinctive Christian says, like David did, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of the Lord. We need to be ready to be able to worship. We must have a distinctive mind. Now, let's look at a distinctive view of the communion. The Lord's Supper memorializes the body and the blood of Christ. Jesus instituted the communion on the occasion of what is commonly called the Last Supper when he had it with the apostles. The apostle Paul gave a clear description of this event, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The purpose of Jesus here was to establish a living memorial, which would go on and be observed throughout the church all time in the future. Matthew reports that Jesus said regarding the cup that he would not drink again until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom that's in the church. He does it have communion with us every Sunday. The kingdom is the church, and when it came to existence, they would have a new relationship with Christ where they could commune together with him and they, as they remembered him in the supper. It is to be done by Christians today. This was instituted for the church in all ages, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. The early church came together on the first day of the week to break bread, Acts 27. 
which means the first day of every week. Every week has a first day. And every faithful Christian does that now. The the communion has a distinctive pattern. There's a, a a definite pattern for the communion in the Bible. Some are saying the New Testament does not provide any patterns for the church today. They ridicule the idea that the Bible contains a blueprint uh, which the church must follow in all ages. They claim things change. This is a new age. But we know that the Word of God never changes. To what extent are we required to imitate the practices of a New Testament church? To put it simply, we must follow the examples of the early church only when they did that which was obedient in the divine instructions. The Great Commission makes it clear that Jesus gave commandments which he instructed the apostles to apply to all nations and says until the end of the world. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The church itself is not the pattern. The will of God is the pattern. Well, why do I say that? Because some have tried to confuse things by asking which New Testament uh, church uh, are we supposed to imitate? They point to the church at Corinth, which we've already stated with all of its failings of division and so forth, and ask if that's the one we're supposed to imitate. The blueprint is not what the churches did, but the will of God, what it says. What must be understood then is that what the apostle bound on the church in the first century and what the first century church sincerely observed or practiced is what we should follow today. The Bible authorizes and requires actions either by direct command or example or necessary inference. We partake and we do things sometimes by example of the early churches, but it's not because of just following what one church did. It's following the law of God. We weren't commanded to partake of the Lord's Supper every week, but we have the example and must follow it. The point is that the supper and all things that pertain to the proper observance of it or by divine appointment. It did not originate with man, and it must not be changed by the traditions of men. The communion has distinctive elements in it that are different and set apart and should not be changed. The bread Jesus used was a simple unleavened bread, which was used in the Old Testament Passover. There can be absolutely no doubt that this because uh, is true because of the distinct prohibition against the use of leaven during the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, the commanded commandment of Moses says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Get all the leaven out of the house. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel 
So Jesus ate the Passover feast while living under the old law, which necessitates that the bread was unleavened. Now the cup is the fruit of the vine, Matthew twenty six twenty nine. But this I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Fruit of the vine is the juice of grapes. There are many other kinds of vines. One might use the expression such as the fruit of the potato vine or the fruit of the pumpkin vine, but such is not in scriptures. The drink used by Jesus was from grapes. This is the proper meaning of the Greek expression, and it was the element used in the traditional Passover meal. Some want to argue about whether the drink used was wine with alcohol content or simply grape juice. I'll never forget that one Sunday we were out of town somewhere and and went to church, and a strange thing happened when I took the cup and lifted it up and drank from it. I nearly choked. <laughs> it was fermented wine. A man by the name of R.C. Foster makes it pretty clear. He, he says this, The fact that all leaven had to be removed from the house two days before the Passover began is proof that the wine which they used was unfermented. The bread was unleavened for precisely the same reason the fruit of the vine was unleavened. The Greek word oinos, which is wine, is used in classical literature of both fermented and unfermented grape juice. But the gospel writers are very careful, however, and do not ever use the word wine when referring to the Lord's Supper. They always use the phrase, the fruit of the vine. The Mormons decided that the cup ought to be changed to water. One modernist preacher who thought the symbols, the symbols representing flesh and blood were just too repulsive and suggested that cake and coffee might be better. For most, of course, the elements would be a settled issue. But without doubt, the most bizarre view regarding the elements is the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the superstition that upon uh, being blessed, the elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine, are changed in substance into the actual body and blood of the Lord. They recognize, of course, that the bread and wine still have the appearance and taste of being bread and wine, but they insist that the substance has actually been changed into another substance. I always wondered that that what would the bread and the fruit of the vine were supposed to taste like if they turned to the body and the blood of Christ. The real flesh and blood of Christ is what they say it turns to. This is altogether alien to the scriptures and common sense. It's just flat wrong. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is a memorial, and that's a distinctive person. Christ was crucified. Most Protestant denominations and Catholics have the mistaken idea that the communion is a sacrament. I've heard the word sacrament a lot. You probably have too. 
And even some of those in the church have been known to make the mistake of calling the communion a sacrament. A sacrament to most people means a ceremony in which grace is granted. Looking at the communion as a sacrament means more than just a Christian obeying God and being strengthened by his faith in his participation in it. It means that the sacrament is a means by which one becomes a recipient of the saving grace of God. It is held that the communion sacrament uh, is a means by which the sacrifice of Christ is made available to believers in a sense of grace, including even the forgiveness of sins. But this is completely false. We do not partake of the communion every week so that our sins are forgiven for the past week. Communion has the purpose of being a memorial and nothing more. It no more grants grace and forgiveness of sins than uh, does singing a song or giving of our money. The world of so-called Christianity has become a world of legalism or liberalism. Both are extremes and are a far cry from what God desires. This situation defines, defines what our mission as true Christians should be. The task might seem too great for the few of us to take on. But just remember this, we are never alone. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We might just be able to accomplish the most by simply living a distinctive Christian life. Stay pure and remember that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Thank you.